Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today we want to talk about the medical and social model of disability and our thoughts on how it applies to endometriosis and chronic illness in general. These two models, which we explained in last week's episode in part one, are two ways of looking at disability, and they are just two of many ways to see disability. So as always, these thoughts that we have today are our own and you don't have to agree with them, and we don't expect that everyone listening will agree with them. I wanted to circle back to some thoughts that I'm having about the idea of the medical model and wanting a cure, because I think that for many of us, in the case of chronic illness, we do want a cure. Actually, it's like, hello, duh, duh, I want a cure for endometriosis. So some people say that the medical model is a better fit for chronic illness disability because, you know, with chronic illness, we are sick. But personally, I still see the social model as more important in how I view my disability. And although Amy and I disagree with the medical model in general for how it views overall disability, I can understand how that line could be blurred specifically when it comes to chronic illness. I think our disappointment and disdain for the medical model in this episode is pretty clear, and there's definitely a reason for it. Historically, and unfortunately still today, the medical model has been extremely damaging to disabled people for so many reasons, most of which we've talked about. And there's a really long history in the U.S. and in the world of treating disabled people as less than, as subhuman, not worth considering. The exclusion of people with disabilities has been so prevalent in society, overlooking, disregarding us. The institutionalization, the forced sterilization, non-consensual research, the casual eugenics that even continue to happen still today. It's an ugly, disgusting history. And discrimination is rampant, even though civil rights laws are in place, and these laws were only put in place in the last few decades notably in 1990 for the Americans with Disabilities Act, which ensured the equal treatment and equal access of people with disabilities to employment opportunities and to public accommodations. And we are still fighting daily to have that actually be true. <laughs> have that actually be implemented. To have that actually happen. <laughs> yeah. They're legally required. Are they legally applied? Not always. Amy and I watched a really wonderful documentary on Netflix. It's called Crip Camp, C-R-I-P Camp. And it follows the story of the disability revolution and activists. And I wanted to read a little blurb about what it's about that comes directly from their website. Quote, Crip Camp shared with insight, clarity, humor, 
and beauty, the experiences of one group of disabled young people and their journey to activism and adulthood, and in doing so provides an opportunity for all to delve into the rich and complicated history of disability activism, culture, and history. The goal of this curriculum is to extend the knowledge and understanding of disability and of disabled people offered in this film, Crip Camp, end quote. Honestly, I really learned a lot from the documentary Crip Camp. It was really moving, and it actually shows footage from, like, the 1970s and the activism and protests and interviews different disabled people. And it was just, it was really interesting. And it also really, for me, shed light on the history of disability activism and how difficult it has been for disabled people throughout history to just have equal rights and equity and how hard disabled people have fought for the rights that we have today or that by law we have today, but we're actually still, you know, fighting to have those laws applied in all situations today. So I wanted to muse for a minute on the social model and how, for me, I think it's a really good fit for chronic illness. And of course, we can all see our chronic illness and our disability from our own viewpoints. And so, like we've said in many episodes, of course, you don't have to agree with Brittany and I, but we just want to share here our experiences and the way that we look at our illness and our disability. So I want to give an example and I want to talk about work. Oh, our favorite <laughs> topic. Sarcasm. That was, that was the sarcasm. topic that gets me the most riled up. Yep, same. <laughs> the most. Most impassioned and not in a good way. Yeah, the most infuriated. The workplace. My favorite topic to rant and rave about. <laughs> and this isn't even like aimed at a specific workplace. This is just more like the, the um, workplace. The American corporate workplace yes. in general. But first, I want to say I just think about how different my experience would be with work if I didn't have endometriosis. And I think, first of all, I've said in the past that I wouldn't have given up teaching, which is a career that I absolutely loved. And I switched from teaching to a desk job because that was more suited to my chronic illness needs. You know, and now Brittany and I are at our desk jobs and we're both struggling. I mean, we're struggling immensely to hold our jobs. And I think a lot of people in the chronic illness and endometriosis community are as well. And I just think about all these times that I've laid under my desk or I've slept in my car, I've slept under my desk when I'm even just too exhausted to walk to the car. I haven't eaten or drank before a meeting because I didn't want to have to run out to the bathroom. You know, I don't do things like have sex during the week or stray from my very strict diet at all from Sunday to Friday because I don't want to do anything that is going to cause disabling pain or brain fog or fatigue and, and basically affect my ability to work. I mean, who else here is passed out in the bathroom at their work? Who else here has emergency drivers who can drive them home if they're in too much pain to drive themselves? Who has had so much brain fog that they have sat at their computer just blinking like, what? Sometimes I'd be like, Am I, I can't here? remember how to breathe in this moment. <laughs> I have to tell myself to inhale and exhale because I have that much brain fog. And then you're, you have so much brain fog, you can't get your work done. And then you go home and at like 8 p.m. you're like, oh, I have all this mental clarity. And then you're doing your work. Because I like, still have to get it done. <laughs> exactly, because it hasn't gotten done. And I, and I just think about how hard it has been for, for me and I'm sure many of you to have a job 
And so I think about like with the medical model, yeah, of course, of course, I want a cure to my chronic pain and my fatigue and my 1 billion food intolerances and my bladder and my bowel dysfunction and whatever else I have, so many other things that I have, that you have, that we have. But there is no cure. And there may not be a cure in my lifetime. I honestly, I'm not sure if there will be a cure in my lifetime because endo is under-researched and underfunded. And honestly, we're still fighting just to make the overall medical community understand that endo isn't the endometrium. So there's no cure right now, and that is a fact. And so the fact also is that this body, my body, my dynamically disabled body that has many bodily functions that just don't work like a non-disabled or a non-chronically ill person's body does, well, this is the body that I bring to work with me every single day. But my body is not accounted for at work. I'm expected to change how my body is. I'm expected to keep up. I'm expected, you know, not to have fatigue and to keep up with the expectations of non-chronically ill bodies and, gosh, getting accommodations like a flexible schedule or work from home, getting more paid sick days or just sick days in general, or more time off after surgery or getting an exemption from the mandatory annual workplace happy hour or any other thing that honestly, I feel is so tiny and reasonable and doable for many employers. It's just this like huge, oh, we, we can't provide that. That's just ridiculous. And it's not ridiculous. So yes, of course, you know, being able to work from home or having a flexible schedule won't change the fact that I have fatigue. It won't change the fact that I have pain or that I have brain fog. But it would help with the social inequity and equality that chronically ill people face in the workplace. It would help with the social barriers that so many of us face to holding a job. And it would make work possible for more of us. So that's why the social model is so important to me is because I can't change the body that I have. I can't change this body. But if society had different attitudes and understanding towards what I go through in the workplace, then it would make my life easier and then it would make my ability to work like a billion times easier. Amy, you mentioned that there's no cure to endo. Really? Did I mention that? <laughs> Did we know that? Yes. And that it's under-researched and underfunded. And that we are constantly battling against widespread misinformation on a regular basis. Endometriosis is not the endometrium. It comes from celebrities, from people who are supposed to be well-respected. ACOG, the medical field. Nobody can get all of the information correct all of the time. Except the CEC. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, CEC. <laughs> and I think part of those problems are because of social barriers. Enlighten us. Like politics, you know, like how much profit Big Pharma makes off of pushing pharmaceuticals on people. Oh, those politics. Those politics. Mm -hmm. yeah. Lobbying, yeah. funding, uh -huh. kickbacks. Mm. Yeah, those kinds of politics. Putting profit over patient care. Yeah, mm. profit's really, it's not even profit over patient. The patient is inconsequential <laughs> in the conversation. They're like, oh my God, we sell these drugs to patients? We had no idea. <laughs> we just thought we were selling things to make money. That's what they think, in my opinion. <laughs> And many of the doctors that are prescribing medications have no concept of these types of politics or how deep they run or how misinformed they are because they believe what they're told in many cases. 
And then we look to excision, which is the gold standard for treatment, and we see how inaccessible it is for so many people, most people, both in forms of how few excision specialists there are worldwide, probably less than 300 for a disease that affects 200 million people. Hold on, just sit there with your mouth opening, contemplating that. That is a terrible person-to-doctor ratio, okay? (laughs) Terrible. And on top of that, many of those 300 doctors for a disease of 200 million people are out of network because of the U.S. insurance system. And why is that? I wonder why. Politics? Yeah, profit? (laughs) I wonder why. We want to be clear, not profit on the excision surgeons No, but on the insurance companies and hospitals and big medical company parts. Profit on there's a long history of why OBGYN has the big OB obstetrics and the little tiny GYN gynecology. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Redwine talked about that in the interview that we did with him. Well, in the U.S., at least, it's because of those politics and the insurance not properly reimbursing excision surgery and paying the surgeons the same for a two, three, five, six-hour long complex surgery requiring exceptional levels of skill and years of training. And then the insurance comes in. They're like, oh, my gosh, wow, that really super-duper complicated surgery should be paid exactly the same as a 20-minute superficial burn. That That's takes the same, almost right? Almost no training to do. Same skill level, same I time think, input, oh same God. energy. Yeah, I think it is exactly the same. And same outcome for the patient, too, not. And shameful to treat medical professionals who have spent all that time and energy to treat them that way is shameful. And I like what Amy said. It's about the big OB, the screaming OB, and the <laughs> tiny little teeny rice grain of the GYN. The teeny, it's like OB. GYN. It's like an afterthought. It's like when you scream, and then at the end of your scream, you're like, oh, that's the GYN. (laughs) It's like a little mosquito buzzing your ear, and you, like, start slapping. You're like, is that a bug? The OB's Godzilla. That was someone If this wasn't clear. GYN. (laughs) And because of that, the surgeons are not compensated in a way that they deserve. And the fact that endo hasn't been made into a subspecialty of gynecology, even though it would improve care drastically, is just shameful at this point. So shush is shameful. Thank you, my musical <laughs> interlude. <laughs> and let's not forget about our favorite sex and gender bias that we have to deal with. Oh, my goodness. How many social <laughs> barriers are in our way to getting good endometriosis care? Oh, in- infinite. That was a, that was a trick question. <laughs> One less than infinite. So conquerable, but a lot. <laughs> so the sex and gender bias in medicine has affected endo in so many different ways. The historical exclusion of people who are assigned female at birth. In research, the fact that diseases that primarily affect people who are assigned female at birth still have drastically less funding and research than diseases that also or only affect people assigned male at birth. The tendency to wrongly attribute or blame a person who's assigned female at birth's symptoms to hysteria or stress, anxiety, depression, instead of addressing the real cause or even actually treating for those if they also have them as comorbidities. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you just named all the real causes. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry I did. You're right. hysteria, stress, depression, the uterus wandering. But if I actually have any of those, they're also not going to treat me for them. They're just going to use it as an excuse and push me out of their office. Make it make sense, please. As you know, I love to just scroll medical journals and no, just kidding. 
No, kind of. No. <laughs> we're not kidding. Okay. okay. <laughs> not I sounded nerdy and then I was like, I'm going to retract that. No, and we're I not. Was like, we're going to be who we are. Okay, I'm going to put it back out there. <laughs> so I, w- I was reading <laughs> on a Saturday morning. I was reading this article and it's called Gender Disparity in the Funding of Diseases by the U.S. National Institutes of Health. And it's by author A. Mirren in the Journal of Women's Health, July 2021. And basically, it's this really interesting article that compares disease funding across all kinds of diseases, funding by the U.S. National Institute of Health. And it does disease funding with taking into account the disease burden. So it looks at like the impact of the disease and then like how much funding they're getting like per the impact. So they try to equal it out. So it's not like, oh, this like cutting your pinky gets, you know, this little funding. How unfair. And this other thing gets huge funding that kills people. So it tried to like it, it factored in the disease impact to the like funding. And, and then they ranked all these diseases. And basically what it came down to is that in the article, they said that some of the most underfunded diseases primarily affect people assigned female at birth. And their diseases like ME, migraines, headaches, anorexia, and endometriosis. They like specifically named endometriosis in their example of some of the most underfunded diseases that primarily affect people assigned female at birth. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I feel recognized. Call it out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the article is from 2021. So this recent. And they looked at the disease funding over, like, I think it was 2015 to 2019. So it's recent. It's not like, oh, 30 years ago. It's like two no, now. Year, like now. It's like two years ago. Yeah, everything else screeched to a halt in 2020 and 2021. So for all intents and purposes, that's now. Now. That's recent. 200 million people worldwide. And, oh, one of the most underfunded diseases is called endometriosis. They're like, ooh, we've never heard of that. Well, that's because we need more funding. Endometriosis? Yeah, we know. We know that's what you think. Endometri underfundus? <laughs> I don't <try>. know. <laughs> Endometri researchless. That's what no. it is. Ooh. <laughs> ooh, she's clever today. She don't Thank got you. brain fog today. <laughs> no, yeah. I do. That was my one moment of clarity. Okay, that's all you're getting this whole episode, everyone. <laughs> that was my piece de resistance. We're done now. <laughs> So what you were discussing before I came in with facts, you know, research Like facts. you like to interject all the time, you know. Thank you. You were talking about all of the social barriers to us getting better medical care, right? Because it's interesting because we're like, oh, the social model is these barriers and an accessibility. And the medical model is like, oh, our bodies are sick and broken and they need fixing. And it's like, yeah, I need fixing. But here's a list of social reasons. <laughs> why my body is not getting fixing, isn't it? So it's all, it is, it's like, it's all mixed in. I'm feeling very fired up right now. Good, we'll light the fire. Well, I think compounding that is the fact that endometriosis is constantly wrongly placed in a box of, it's just a bad period. Oh, wait, it's not just a bad period? It's just a bad period. Oh, yeah, (laughs) it's just a bad period. I remember now. Yeah. And even if it was just a bad period, which it's not, but let's just humor it for a second and be like, oh, it's just a bad period. I'm sorry. Still not fair. When you have a bad period that makes it you can't get out of bed for 10 days and you're terrified and you have PTSD, I'm pretty sure that even if it was just a bad period, it would be more like, it's a horrific period that gives you PTSD and you feel like you want to run away screaming every time blood comes out of your vagina. <laughs> How come it's like if you say you have something like endo or anything that attributes to really extreme periods, 
People are like, oh, yeah, that's a bad period. But when you're like, I had like the worst flu ever, they're like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Where's the energy? Hold the same energy. Even if it was just a bad period, you could still have 1% of empathy and sympathy for me. Rude. Anyway. No, Brittany, because a cold isn't from that organ, the blasted Ugh, uterus. And it affects That's the everyone. Problem. I know. It's the uterus. I was expecting hating. too much. My poor uterus. Poor thing. What did they do to deserve this? Anyway, because Endo gets shoved in that it's a bad period box, which, as we all know, which is, is sh- not true. <laughs> which is shaped, the box is actually shaped like a uterus. Oh, mine's shaped like a middle finger. Because <laughs> that's how I feel about that box. <laughs> so, yes, we know that's a lie because endometriosis is a full body disease and it doesn't just have to do with our periods. And the reason that people say this, and by people I mean everyone, including the medical community, says things like this is so that it can be used as an excuse to dismiss endometriosis. Endometriosis is not really a big deal. It's just a bad period. Periods suck in general. Everybody who has a period says they suck. Yeah, they're not fun for anyone. Or, yeah, that's just a person who has a period. It's just their cross to bear. Whatever kind of phrasing they want to use, it's the same thing we hear over and over again. Well, if you have a period, then that you know what you're getting into, and this is just what happens. People just have really bad periods sometimes. Yeah, when I was born, I was like, hi, I'm here. And the doctor was like, what are you going to name her? And my parents were like, oh, we're going to name her Amy. And then the doctor turned to me and was like, hey, Amy, so you have a uterus. I just want to let you know that this is what you're in for. People with a uterus menstruate. And menstruators just have really bad periods. So the doctor literally told me from, like, 12 minutes old, the doctor was like, hey, listen up, girlfriend, okay? Just want to let you know that you're joining a club That's of what all you're in for. uterus holders who got really bad periods. So have a great life. It's your cross to bear. <laughs> yeah, so you were prepared. What's the complaint? Exactly. So then when I was, you know, 15, 16, getting my period, passing out, my mom calling the ambulance, you know, going to the nurse's office in a wheelchair at school because I, you know, fainted in the bathroom for my period. I just kept remembering the doctor's words from when I was 12 minutes old. And the doctor was like, girlfriend, that's your cross to bear to me. That's I he, told you that years to ago. Yeah. And I was like, oh, thanks, bro. <laughs> that makes it all better. Cool. I now forgot. I, I totally feel so much better. You're right. I'm going to go back home and bear this cross into the toilet at home. Wink. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we could go on for days about the things that we've been told about having bad periods. And I'm sure you could as well. But in summary, basically, there's just so many social barriers. Oh, thank God we're at the summary. <laughs> You're the one who makes things so long. You're the one who's been talking this whole time. No, I have not. <laughs> Certainly sounded like it to me. Yeah, do you block out the times when you talk because you just can't wait until you get to talk again? Anyway, so in summary. <laughs> so in summary. <laughs> so basically, the point is, is that there's so many social barriers in society that prevent the medical community from taking endometriosis seriously. And that means that it's not serious to find a cure or even to put research into or funding. Excision, which is the gold standard, is treated as secondhand or an afterthought or something that's not worth developing and making accessible for everyone by the overarching medical community. And all of that has a direct and massive impact on those of us that have endometriosis. And also, if we look at endo under the medical model and see it as our damaged bodies needing a medical fix or cure, 
Well, um, first of all, Brittany, you're contradicting yourself because we were told when we were very tiny before like 10 minutes old that if you had a uterus, it was just your cross to bear. Yeah, so, it's just my problem. Yeah, it's not that you're defective. It's that that's just what the organ is. Oh, but the medical community can't make up its mind. It's also <laughs> our problem, but it's also something's broken and we need to fix it. It's your cross to bear to find a cure. They just love giving us things on our backs that we have to deal with and carry through our whole lives. Meanwhile, there's still no cure, so I don't know what they're talking about. Anyway, so the medical community contradicts itself. They say, yes, it's your burden to bear from birth because you have a uterus. But then in the next breath, they say, oh, but there's something wrong with you. Yeah, you told me there was going to be something wrong with me. (laughs) Oh, there's something wrong with you. You have to immediately cure it because it's broken. You're broken. But you just said, I know what I said. It's, It's your burden to bear. You have a uterus. But also you're broken. Which one is it? It's both to them. It's both. <laughs> I don't know. I just feel so scared and ashamed. Well, that's the point. They like you there. That's where they're putting you. I'm having a lot of anxiety. And oh, well, that's making your <laughs> that's, symptoms yeah, worse, see? isn't it? You better see? stop doing that. They know what they're doing. <laughs> so basically, the point that I want to get across to the medical community now is, is a newsflash. Let's give Brittany her bullhorn. <laughs> <Burp>. <laughs> Is that if you think that my body is so broken and it needs a cure, my whole existence just exists to find a cure, well, you're not even doing a good job of what you claim to be, which is the medical community, which says that I need a cure. Well, where's my cure? If all I have to do is wait for a cure and you're going to fix me and I have to do everything I can to get a cure, where's the cure? <laughs> Where is it? Where is the where's cure? Where's the cure? <laughs> Where is it? If my body's broken and I am sick which I am sick, but my body's not broken. But if the medical model is saying, oh, you're broken and defective and you need to be fixed, then fix me already. Then do it. Why is it so I dare you. I double dog dare you. I triple dog dare you. (laughs) Fix me already. (laughs) Fix me. Come on. Fix me. Well, we have this thing that some people do. It's called excision, but like, we don't really like market that a lot. We also like, won't pay your doctor if they do it. And also, we're not going to make it easily accessible for you because you're going to have to pay, like, a lot of it on your own. And also, there's, like, only several people who do it. So we have that, but, like, well, that's not a cure. But you know what you can really do? Um, well, you remember when you were born and you had that pesky uterus and we were like, ooh, that's your cross to bear? We, mm-hmm. can, we can remove that organ from your body, that defective, broken, disease-forming organ. We can just remove that from your body. And yeah, then, but and then yeah, that'll be yeah, but, your 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 cure. Yeah, but right. Yeah, but no. Yeah, no, that's that, not a cure. Oh, what? What? No. I know you're like thirty years behind, doctor, but that's <laughs> not a cure. <laughs> All right, look, I don't appreciate you googling things. Okay, I'm the medical. I wish you would here. Google things a little bit more. Actually, <laughs> I don't know how to use Google. Okay, I'm aware. <laughs> I'm aware. <laughs> I could tell. <laughs> And Googling and reading a medical journal is not Googling and reading an article on Cosmo. Okay, doctor. Oh, my goodness. I love to see Brittany all fired up. It was your turn. Then it was my turn. I'm going to volley it back to you. Okay, I'm going to take it. I'm going to do more because I have a lot to say about how society really irritates me when it comes to my illness. But before I move on, I just want to calmly say that Brittany and I were joking about the hysterectomy cure. And I'm sure many of the listeners knew that. But we do just want to reiterate that. The very final part where I was the doctor was total sarcasm. A hysterectomy is not a cure for endometriosis. There is actually no cure for endometriosis. And while a hysterectomy may be part of your treatment plan, it's not an end-all be-all, and it does not remove your endometriosis. 
Well, I think with everything that we've talked about so far, and I want to continue on the topic, is that with looking at endometriosis as a disability, whether from the medical model or from the social model, I think it can be hard to fully fit chronic illness into, you know, fully into the social model or fully into the medical model. But Brittany and I still lean very heavily towards the social model because of all these reasons that we're talking about. And of course, I want better medical care. Of course, I want more accessible medical care with more options. Like I want more options to choose from for my care that have less side effects or that are less costly or less inaccessible. So like I want more options. What I really want is excision surgery to be accessible for everyone. And if that is not possible in this political climate of the big OB and the tiny, teeny, weeny little chihuahua, then I would like to have more options that are not hormonal and options for my treatment that have less side effects. But at the same time, I still want, even in addition to that, I want a reduction in social barriers and negative attitudes towards illness and towards endometriosis. I want an end to the stigma. I want an end to the taboo of talking about bodily functions. I want an end to the ableist attitudes that people put forward when they talk to us about our illness. I want an end to the misinformation and the politics and all the things that Brittany went on in great depth about (laughs) that I shall not repeat. Or shall I? No. I know you want to. It's okay. (laughs) I do, but I'm going to move on to a new topic about me. So I want to explore what I was saying earlier about the social model and accommodations in the workplace. But I actually want to take that and I want to talk about that in my personal life because life is not just work. Thank goodness. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. Although sometimes it seems like it's life only work. can be work, but work isn't <laughs> all of life. Does that make sense? <laughs> and I also imagine that what I'm going to share now, many of you have had a very similar experience. I'm pretty sure that many of you listening pretty much spend all of your time managing your chronic illnesses, which could be endometriosis, fibromyalgia, endometriosis. Oh, I said that already. Endometriosis. (laughs) I think you said endometriosis, but I wasn't sure. Maybe list that. Well, that's the main one. (laughs) Interstitial cystitis, mass selectivation syndrome. I don't know what I've said so far. So many, many diseases and conditions that we can have. And I'm sure many of us listening have multiple ones. Perhaps even we need two hands to count all the conditions that we have. So I have this double-edged sword where I'm pretty lucky that if I follow about 10 million daily rules, then I can significantly reduce my symptoms. Okay, if I can get eight hours of sleep, which means I need a dark, quiet environment with a very soft mattress foam that does not put pressure on my trigger points. And if I avoid gluten and dairy and sugar and histamine and grains and so much more. And if I do yoga and I stretch and foam roll and take a walk daily. And if I keep my stress down. And if I have access to a bathroom at all times. And if I rest when I need to, which means I can take naps and I can pace myself and then I can get up and I can close my eyes when I need to and I can put my head down and I can do a little now and then I can rest and I can go back and do a little more. And a task that should take 10 minutes really takes me like two hours because of all the resting I do in the middle of it. Well. If I do all of those things and many other things that I did not name, then potentially, hopefully, 
I can not spend the entire day crying and writhing in pain, and I can go from an eight or nine on the 10-point pain scale to a more tolerable four or five. And obviously, that's a lot of work. What do you think, Brittany? Does that sound like a, does that sound like a lot of work? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does. <laughs> All right. And that requires certain sleeping situations, certain rest areas, certain access to the toilet, specific kind of food, and so much more. And even if I do all of those things, it does not guarantee that I'm going to go down to a four or a five on the symptom scale. I can just hope and pray and say, please, I did all the things. And Endo's like, I don't care if you do everything that I asked you to do. I'm going to act out today. You're like, okay. I'm along for the ride. (laughs) Woo! I love riding on the bathroom floor. (laughs) That's fun. It's my favorite amusement park ride to take. (laughs) After you go on a roller coaster, then you get ride on the bathroom floor, you know. It's a fun one. Everyone wants to line up for that one. They sell fast passes for that ride. Oh, absolutely. So who else is with me when I say that leaving the house with endometriosis can be really, 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 really hard. Oh, really? Like really hard, like extraordinarily difficult, like the biggest challenge of my life. Like people are like, ooh. A year ago, I climbed Everest and we're like, oh, my God, yesterday I opened my front door and I put my foot outside oh, by and I got my mail. <laughs> yeah, that's how hard. That's the level of difficulty that I'm talking about. And because of that, some of us are housebound. And I was housebound for a while when I was younger. And, you know, I couldn't leave the house because of my illness. Most days I couldn't even leave my bed. And some of us are not housebound, but our illness makes it extremely difficult to do things, to meet friends, to go to restaurants, to travel, to go to nightclubs, to just do basic things that people love to do. When I think of the things that I've done in my life, all of my memories of like memories that should be fun or like exciting or wow. All of those memories are intertwined with traumas because of my endometriosis. You know what I remember most about my trip to Taiwan, Brittany? What? Getting my period unexpectedly in the bathroom and crawling down the sidewalk back to my hostel. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. It's a good one. You know some of my favorite memories at nightclubs? Tell me. I'd love to know. (laughs) Trying to sneak in food by hiding it in my boots or my bra. Handy dandy Tupperware. (laughs) Or sometimes in my underwear because in a lot of nightclubs, not when I lived in Japan, which was like amazing, but when I lived in Barcelona, it was always, we got to search your bag for food and drinks. Like, why can't I just bring in food? Huh? Why? we need you to buy our food and drink. They don't sell food in I know. That's the point. They sell drink, yeah. But (laughs) they don't want you to eat food. They just want you to drink drink. Well, well, basically, in order to go to a nightclub, I needed food. Like, I had such bad diarrhea. I needed to eat like every two hours or I literally pass out from my blood sugar. And so all of these times when I went to the nightclub, I had to secretly bring in my food. And I just remember, like, if it was winter, it was easier. But it was when it was, like, summer, it was like, hmm, where am I going to hide this can of tuna and yogurt? And, like, trying to, like, shove a can of tuna, like, in my bra and then, like, you know, have my arms crossed or, like, put my bag in front of me or stand really close to the guy I was with and just be like, I love him so much. I just like can't get off of him. So they couldn't see this like huge tuna in my. <laughs> That's sneaky. I like that for oh, you. <laughs> because, well, when they find That's your smart. food, they throw it away. Yeah. What a waste. You know? Too. Well, and I can't go in if I can't have my, you know, 3 a.m. tuna snack. And 
<laughs> I mean, it's like three to snack in the bathroom. <laughs> it like, well, that's the thing. It, and where did I, where did I eat it? Because you can't get on the dance floor. I would literally go in these like filthy stalls, and then I would eat my tuna, you know, with my hands. I didn't have a fork, and I would be like eating my stinky tuna next to a stinky toilet at three in the morning. <laughs> Sounds like you just need to go home to bed. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, you know what? Going to nightclubs was like part of my self-medicating at unhealthy coping patterns. Yeah. Going to nightclubs does not have to be an unhealthy coping mechanism, but it, it was, was just for you for in me. that moment. Yeah. And it was also very fun. But I want to say like, I really could not handle being at a nightclub, but I was at these nightclubs. <laughs> Let me tell you. Using and... escapism. Do not deal with the fact that you would have diarrhea if you didn't eat every two hours. Yeah. yeah. It was, um, <laughs> yeah. So I have all these fun memories and they're just intertwined with these really difficult times. Like I've gone to a lot of music festivals and I've spent a lot of music festivals in the porta potty with diarrhea for hours. Like literally like dancing from within the porta potty. I'm just like, yeah. Ooh, feeling the groove on the porta potty. Like that's where I danced. It was like, Amy, where are you on the dance floor? I was like, oh yeah, I'm dancing in stall three. I think about going away for a weekend and how before I had my super amazing foam that I would bring with me at all times. I remember going away with my friend for the weekend to this like beach town. And we were going to get a hostel when we got there. So they got there and we were like, hey, we need a hostel. And then they showed us the room and I touched the bed and I was like, this bed is way too hard. We have to go to another hostel. So we literally left the hostel and we went to another hostel. And then I touched the bed in that hostel and I was like, ooh, this bed is way too hard for my body because it would give me trigger points all over and pressure. And then I would just spend the whole night with fibromyalgia pain and I wouldn't sleep at all and it would be a mess. And I literally made my friend go to three different hostels. And we were at the third one. She was pretty impatient at this point. And she was like, um, can we just stay here? Because all the beds are the same. And I was like, yeah, sure. Because I didn't want to be an annoying burden that I felt like I was, which I wasn't. But I understand that I was making her, you know, we were trying to find a hostel. And it was hard for both of us. What I did was then I asked for extra sheets and blankets. They were like, but honey, it's summer. I was like, I need three extra blankets and a lot of pillows. Don't ask questions. Just provide me what I asked for, please. Give me all the floof you own. <laughs> you may have thought I said give me a lot of the blankets. I meant every single blanket. <laughs> well, if it's summer and people don't need blankets, then, then you I can, can provide have me all. with 25 blankets. I'm going to you? make a puffy blanket mountain. Thank you. <laughs> And I literally put all these blankets and sheets and pillows all over the bed. I put all my clothes on the bed. I spent like ages arranging the bed. I slept in the bed. I was like, oh, I slept like so-so. And the next day they came in and they made the bed and they took away every single blanket. And they put all my clothes like on top of my suitcase. I was like, ah! And I had to ask for the blankets again. We don't want housekeeping. Please don't come in. So my point is that all of these things that I have done in my life have been wrapped up with my illness. Trying to find a restaurant <laughs> that I can eat at. Hold on. Let's all collectively laugh together. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. That was really cute. Trying to find a restaurant That's that funny. can accommodate like 5,000 intolerances. <laughs> That's funny. Not even the water is es tolerable in Especially a restaurant. Especially <laughs> like 10 or 15 years ago where it was like unheard of. Unheard of to have, you know, even a gluten-free or something. <sighs> what about trying to use the bathroom when you go out in public? Who else has a long history of begging places that have employees-only toilets to just please let you use the toilet? Please let me use the toilet. Yep, a lot of memories there. Peeing, pooping behind cars, behind bushes, on the sidewalk, 
Once I remember I was peeing on the sidewalk and then someone came up to me and they thought that I was robbing their car, even though I was actually peeing next to their car. I didn't know it was their car because I just thought it was a random car. And they were like, what are you doing robbing my car? And I was like pulling out my pants. And I was like, um, I'm, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm peeing. And they started threatening me and they were going to call the cops. And I ran away. I You're was like, like, I can show you my puddle. <laughs> they can see my puddle. They can see my puddle. But it was people that had their own ideas about what I was doing. And they yeah. did not want to hear what I had to say. And they were very sure that I was robbing their car. And they threatened to slice me in half with a knife. That's a lot of effort <laughs> for a car robbery. But all right. <laughs> it's a little extreme, bro. <laughs> this sounds funny, but it was actually they were like very threatening me in my face. And I just peed. And I was like, no, I just I'm peeing and I'm leaving. I was like 23 years old. And they were like, we're going to slice your ASS. We're going to slice your butt like a cheese with a knife. It's already halfway there. You just need a little bit more, right? And then you can crack me right now. It's the crack, you know? <laughs> no, it was scary. I was like, oh, my God. I'm sorry. Well, so, you know, what What would have happened is if they went anywhere near your butt with a knife. I mean, you have a weapon of destruction back there. Just let it fly. <laughs> like, you do not want to slice You don't want to go anywhere near me. That will, you thought blue cheese smelled bad. I okay. can projectile, and I don't mean out of my mouth, sir. You may want to run away from my back end. <laughs> I also remember when I lived in Barcelona and I would walk around for the day or I would go shopping. I would be so exhausted partway through the day that I would lay down on benches. I would lay down on bus stops. I would sit on the sidewalk leaning against a building and I would take a nap on the sidewalk. I mean, I tried to get out of the way, but I was like, my body needs to lay down right here, right now. And there was no other place to rest. And when the eyelids closed, the eyelids closed, let me tell you. So you got to get down before the body brings you down, right? I want to crack my skull open. So my point is that, my gosh, living with endometriosis and all these chronic illnesses is exhausting and it is traumatic, right? And now that I'm in my 30s, I'm 37, I don't do anything. Like, I am not that whippersnapper Amy of 25 years old who was like, I want to go to the nightclub and I don't want to miss out on my tab in the beach with my friends and I want to go shopping. Now I'm like, ooh, I want to sit in my bathroom all day. My bedroom is two feet from my toilet, you know. I want to sit in my bathroom all day and I want to do my hobbies and I want to watch Netflix and I want to be comfortable and I want to be close to my food and close to my bathroom, close to my bed for when I have to sleep and take a nap and I don't want to leave the house because leaving the house is so freaking hard. And I don't want to do all the things that I just did 10 years ago. And I didn't like doing those things, but I was all like, yeah, I'm just going to do them. And now I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not. No, I'm not laying on the sidewalk when I'm tired. Sorry. <laughs> I'll just stay home in my bed. When I think about the medical model of disability and the cure for endometriosis that has not come yet, obviously, having a cure for endometriosis would make leaving the house so much easier, like a billion times easier. I'm really into using the word billion in this episode. A billion times It's a easier. billion times more satisfying to say a billion. So. A billion. <laughs> it really is. And of course, if I had a cure, I could do things spontaneously and I wouldn't have to go to three different hostels to try to find a bed that fit me and then ask for 50 billion blankets and put all my clothes in the bed and I don't have to sleep on benches on the sidewalk. And I wouldn't have to beg employees in public areas to let me use their restroom. <sighs> but alas. Alas, medical model, there is no cure. So since there's no cure, 
for me, it comes back to the social model and it comes back to the societal attitudes towards people with chronic illness. And it comes back to better accommodations, which is what this social model of disability talks about. Because I would love to see more benches in public. I would love to see benches in public where people can rest. I would love to see more seating in public transport. I would love to see more bathrooms for public use that are not employees only and that are open for anyone in the public. I would love to see more restaurants with gluten-free options or gluten-free and dairy-free options or just a willingness of the chef to cook something for people who have food intolerances because yeah, I don't really eat out in restaurants, but if I travel somewhere, then I have to typically eat in a restaurant if I don't have like an Airbnb or something or if I'm staying in a hotel. So I have to go to a restaurant and it is so difficult to find something to eat. And you're like, can you just cook me a plain piece of chicken? And some restaurants just, they don't want to do that. I would love to see hostels or hotels or Airbnbs that have mattress toppers, you know, these soft mattress toppers for people that have problems with their body with chronic pain or problems with pressure points and you can like pick when you reserve the hotel oh do you want a firm mattress or would you like the complimentary mattress topper and it's just like this egg foam thing so there is probably so much more that i think we would collectively like to see in society that would make it a lot easier for us to leave the house with our chronic illness But one of the main things on top of all of that that I would love to see is more education about endometriosis and about chronic illness in general to the public so that when I do need a toilet and have to beg an employee, when I do pass out on the sidewalk, crawl down the sidewalk, pee myself on the sidewalk, poop myself on the sidewalk, fall asleep on the sidewalk, geez, a lot of things happen on the sidewalk for me. Those are some busy sidewalks <laughs> in your I, lifetime. I want to, I want to, you have used the heck out of those sidewalks. <laughs> I want to reiterate that I spent 10 years outside of the United States. So I feel like in the US and a lot of these cities, we're like not on the sidewalks as we drive. Everywhere. And there's also not a lot of good sidewalkage. <laughs> exactly, yeah. in the US. So I want to be clear that when I talk about all my sidewalk, <laughs> Fiestas or fiascos, however you want to put that. And Europe and Asia sidewalks are more luxurious. Yeah, I was living in Barcelona and I was living in Tokyo. So it was like... Nice, good sidewalkage if you've ever seen. You walked everywhere. You were constantly on the sidewalk or the public transportation to get from A to B. Yes. So I want to... And they were good sidewalks. Good for a nap. Until I... Good for a pee. Until I peed on them. Good for a vom. (laughs) Good for a vom. (laughs) You like go back to Barcelona and you're like... You know, people are like, oh, yeah, that's where I met my first love. That's where I had that kiss. You're like, that's where I vomited. Oh, that's that. <laughs> See that stain right there? That that's my blood. It's been there for like 20 years. <laughs> oh, don't look at the Sagrada Familia. Look at my blood stain on the sidewalk. <laughs> you know why I would love the education of the public on chronic illness? Because I am tired of... When things like this happen, like when you're in a dire crisis situation with your illness in public, which I haven't been in years because I don't leave my house anymore, but when I used to leave my house constantly and I was constantly in these dire situations, I was met with stares, gawking, eye rolls, pointing, uninvited questions, dismissive comments, the general attitude that I was less of a human being, which I then internalized, and that also made me feel like I was less of a human being and less worthy and inadequate and undeserving and everything else. So 
in summary, I want a cure, but there is not a cure. So what I want is for doctors to look for a cure. And also at the same time, I want society to get their act together and to stop being so ableist and ignorant about people living in bodies that don't work the way their bodies do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Applause, applause, applause. Exhibit A, <laughs> blood stain on the sidewalk over here. <laughs> Exhibit B, you see that green splattering on the building facade? That's where I had explosive diarrhea after eating shrimp. <laughs> I love that this, you know, when you go to a city and you travel, you get like a tourist. Like you can get a little guide and it gives you all the main popular points. We're going to have an Amy's Insides guide and it's just going to take you from Barcelona to Tokyo to some sidewalk in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> There's just going to be little points that we can travel along <laughs> to find where all of Amy's bodily fluids ended up. <laughs> I'll take that tour. Let's go. <laughs> Amy's blood is in 1,200 countries. No, it's not 1,200, <laughs> but it feels like it. Amy's blood is on 1,200 sidewalk 12 tiles. 12 billion sidewalks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I also think that something the medical model can do is reinforce an idea or a version of hatred of our bodies. So what I mean is, how often do we say, like, jokingly or not, that our bodies with endometriosis or chronic illness are defective or broken or inadequate, useless, the worst? I want to trade in this body and get a new one. I hate my uterus. All of these kinds of phrases are things that are kind of common and peppered around in our language, in our community. They're not abnormal to see them. It's not abnormal to feel that either. It's very common. And yes, it's true that there is dysfunction in our body. Our bodies do not operate in a way that would be optimal or up to the best standard. That's, that's okay. That's factual. That is neither bad nor good. That is neutral. That's just factual that our bodies don't operate up to the prime standard. And because that's the truth about our bodies, We may need medical attention or medication, surgeries, lifestyle changes or amendments, and all of those things are very important to us. And that means that at times we may need help from the medical community. And when a medical professional is able to provide competent help, competent, yeah, note the competent competent here, or a solution or fix for us, we typically gladly accept it with open arms because it can be life-changing Applause. because we want to feel better yes, and improve do. our quality of life. Absolutely. But I also think that with the nature of the medical model, and as we've been saying, can lead to those negative attitudes about people with disabilities that we need curing and fixing. And with chronic illness, we do want a cure, but we don't need a cure for our whole body. Our bodies don't need a cure. Our bodies don't need a fix. So when we say things like, I hate my body, We say it because we're always nauseous. We have heartburn or we have pain. We have diarrhea. We have trouble holding our bladders. We have anxiety. We have other chronic, serious symptoms that we deal with on a daily basis. Oh, my gosh. Are you describing how we feel right now in this very moment? Yeah, actually. I forgot (laughs) brain fog. Brain fog. (laughs) Yes, I am describing how we feel now. And when we feel like that day after day, it does feel like our bodies are failing us in a way. And that can make us angry, which is totally valid, because it can also make us sad, which is also valid. But I think it's really important to notice that while we are told that our bodies are broken, 
that our bodies are the problem, that there's something wrong with our bodies, our bodies are actually there for us. Our bodies have survived with us through all of the periods, through all of the chronic pain episodes, through all of the horrible symptoms that we've experienced. Our bodies have gotten us through them, have allowed us to survive, have allowed us to continue to deal with what we're dealing with and haven't let us down. Every time I get like, oh, I hate this body so much. And then I think to myself, okay, no, what I hate is having all these symptoms, but my body isn't broken and my whole body isn't broken because I always think back to one of the opening sentences in the book, Full Catastrophe Life, is that one of the first things that John Kabat-Zinn, the author, says is, if you're still breathing, something like this, he says, like, if you're still breathing, then there's hope, you know? So I always think about, like, in my worst moments, my body is still doing things that I'm not aware of. Like, my body is still breathing and, you know, my lungs are still taking in oxygen and my heart is still beating and my kidneys are still filtering bad stuff and <laughs> my liver is doing its thing and the pancreas, I don't think those parts are, you know broken so <laughs> i think they're doing their things but <laughs> i feel like it i definitely know that i'm breathing and my heart's beating you know the rest, i can clock rest, those immediately i'm okay. a little iffy about let me tell you i'm like oh my fingernails are growing you know they're getting longer every week i mean <laughs> there's parts of my body i can you know my my eyes are i'm looking at my art in front of me like my body is is working parts of it are you know having dysfunctional body functions but parts of it are are working well, and that's part of the problem with the medical model is that it really causes us to focus on the defects or the things that we perceive need fixing or the things that we perceive or are told to perceive as broken, which obviously those things affect everything that we do and they affect our opportunities and everything that we go through on a daily basis. But it's not healthy for us to see our whole body and our whole existence as a person in our own body as a broken thing that needs curing and that if only I got a cure, then I would finally be whole and fine and fixed and everything would be better again. Well, and I think that's something that I, when I finally realized that, even if I didn't have endometriosis anymore, like even if I suddenly got a cure, it would not instantly make me happy. It would make me happy for probably a week, a month, maybe a year. I don't know, probably not even a year, but it wouldn't make me happy because my life existence is so much more than how I feel. And obviously how I feel plays a huge role in my mental health and being in chronic pain constantly obviously has really taken a toll on my emotional and psychological health. But even if I were suddenly to be cured of endometriosis, if I didn't know how to find joy in my life, if I didn't have meaning already, you know, in my life, if I didn't have solid connections and friendships and relationships, and there's just so much more I've realized to my life and healing, like a full-on bird's-eye view of healing, like a physical, emotional, mental, spiritual healing, you know, like a full-body healing, that even if I were to just be like, oh my God, I have a cure, okay, great, I wouldn't be like, crapping on sidewalks randomly, but I may still feel just as empty as I've felt because maybe I don't have connection in my life or I don't have hobbies or I don't have fulfillment. 
And so I think, go ahead, Brittany. I'll let you say what I think. The brain fog came in. I was like, oh, I was doing really good. And then I. <laughs> and the curtains closed. And, and then we took I took a bow like, and we left. I don't know where I am anymore. So <laughs> go for it, Brittany. <laughs> you were supposed to say what you were going to say. I'm not your brain. So you're going to have to leave it there, whatever you said. <laughs> okay. Shucks. Well, go on with your own train of thought, Brittany. Okay, okay. <laughs> My train of thought was just really to drive home and summarize the point of that the medical model tells us that we are broken and we need curing or fixing in order to be a regular, upstanding, average, good citizen in society. Quote, unquote, normal. Yes. None of that is true. That's, that was sarcasm, heavy sarcasm. So when we are told by the medical system that there is something wrong with us in order for us to be not something wrong with us, we have to fix all these broken parts. And we internalize that and we say, okay, yeah, all these parts are broken. That means I'm broken. And when we internalize that we're broken, it feels hopeless. Like I can't fix these things on my own. We also spend so much time and energy and so much of our focus trying to fix things about ourselves that we perceive as broken. And some of those things can be duct taped together and a little bit of glue. And we can make them feel better. We can help with our symptoms. We can help with some of these problems. But Those things aren't broken about us because they are just how our body is. Everybody, every body is different. And my body allows me to do things that are so wonderful. Even with chronic anxiety, I can still find joy and I can still laugh and I still have the ability to feel love and love people and my pet. And I still have the experience of life, even though these other parts of me aren't up to what the medical community says they should be. And that's the problem with the medical model is it causes us to internalize that. And it takes a really long time for many of us to say, I'm not going to internalize the brokenness of the medical model. The medical model says to the medical community, your whole purpose as a doctor is to fix and cure people. And for those of us with chronic illnesses that have no cure, or even with disabilities where we don't agree that we need to be fixed or changed or amended in any way, That can mean that we have to work around this common model, the most common model, and say, we don't need your fix. I would like a cure for my chronic illness, but I don't need to be fixed with the cure. There's nothing wrong with me. There's just some dysfunction in my body. I'd love to have that taken care of. And it takes a really long time because the fixing isn't just physical. It's also emotional. It's also mental. It's also spiritual for some people. There's a lot that goes into feeling good in your body and feeling good about yourself. And so I think it's just important to point out that the medical model drives this home and we internalize that and we see it in our community with comments about how we're broken, how we need to be fixed, how we hate ourselves, how we hate our uterus or our ovaries or our bodies. And it's hard to see that and it's hard to feel that because Nobody should feel like they, as a human being, they as a person, they as a body are the problem. It's not the problem. I got my train of thought back. All right, choo-choo. You gave it to me, and what you said was brilliant and genius, and you made me realize it was what you were saying about how, you know, my body's broken, I have endometriosis, my body's broken, I'm broken, and we take one to apply, I have endo, so that means my body's broken, so that means I'm broken. And then in my own case, I just put all my eggs in this basket of, well, if only I'll feel better, my life will be better. If only I feel better, I'll be better. I'll be unbroken. And there are so many aspects to feeling whole. And there are so many aspects to happiness and meaning and life, which is what I was saying before. And for so long, I put so much emphasis on, 
I want to feel better. And that was like, I want to feel better. And again, I want to really reiterate that I want to feel better. And I think we've talked about in this episode at great length and in this podcast how horrible endometriosis is. So of course, I do want to feel better. But if I can't feel better, where does that leave me? Broken? I don't want to be broken. And I don't want to just keep putting my eggs in this basket while I'll only be whole when I'm better from endo. Well, I'm not going to get better, so I'm going to be broken my whole life. I'm trying to unlearn all these perceptions of myself that I think I've gotten in part from the medical model and from the comments, ableist comments and internalized ableism and the way that people look at disabled people and people who are chronically ill and the way that I've looked at myself. And I'm just trying to live my life and I want to do all the things that I want to do and I want to feel happy. And if that means I have to feel happy and do all the things and bring endo everywhere with me and bring my chronic illness with me, then then so be it. But I don't want to be thought of as broken by anyone else. I don't want anyone to say to me, oh, you're broken or this body part is defective. And I don't want to say that about myself. So we want to leave you with a question today. How has the medical model and or the social model of disability been applicable to your experience with endo? If there were less social barriers and more accommodations of chronic illness, would that make daily life activities more accessible to you? What kind of accommodations in public life would you like to see? More benches? More places to lay down? Nap pods in every corner? And another question for you. I have so many. How many sidewalks have your bodily fluids on them? Is your menstrual blood stained on buildings across three continents like Amy's is? Please reach out to us. Let us know how many buildings are covered in your menstrual blood or feces or vomit. Tell us your continent count. Spit, bile, (laughs) earwax. Oh, (laughs) we're going fancy. (laughs) Sweat. Maybe you went up and just rubbed your armpit all over the building. I mean, if you're running to find a toilet, there is sweat. There is a lot of sweat. So please reach out to us. We're on the website in 16years.com. You're going to find all the resources that we used in the making of these episodes on our website. And we're also on Instagram at in16yearsofendo. And so please reach out to us there if you'd like. Thank you so much for listening. And keep bleeding on buildings. That's our new motto, actually, from this podcast. Keep bleeding on buildings. <laughs> <laughs>